This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. What if I told you that it was possible to stop worrying about money forever? Money is the number one cause of stress for Americans. According to a 2015 study from the American Psychological Association, nearly three-quarters of Americans reported feeling stressed about money at least some of the time, and one in four reported experiencing extreme money stress in the past month. All of this worry is affecting our health. Increased stress leads to unhealthy behaviors such as excessive screen time, overeating, smoking, and drinking. With many Americans putting their health care needs on the back burner when financial worries loom, the money-stress-illness cycle becomes even more entrenched. It would be bad enough if worrying about money just affected the worrier, but financial stress is affecting marriages and other relationships. For example, children of parents who fight about money are reportedly more likely to struggle with credit card debt as young adults. And even if the kids of money-stressed parents are not destined to fall into a debt trap, financial arguments at home can teach kids that money is a fraught and negative topic, making it more difficult for them to learn healthy financial behaviors. The good news is that we've got a solution for you. And in this part of today's show, we're going to show you how you can start ending your financial worries right now. I'm Armin Brock. Stay with us. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. If you love them enough to listen to them practice the same song on tuba, please be done. Over and over and over and over and over. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're correctly buckled in the back seat. Sounds good, honey. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Three, two, one. Oh, no. Which, Which button am I... I... Oh. When every second counts... You can't wing it. Uh, guys, a uh, little help up here. In a home fire, you may have less than two minutes to get out. So make a family home fire escape plan. Then practice home fire drills at least twice a year so everyone knows what to do when they hear. Prepare your family at ready.gov slash fire drill. Brought to you by FEMA, the Ag Council, and Make Safe Happen. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Emily Guy Birkin, who is the author of End Financial Stress Now, Immediate Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. Emily, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So what do you think is the biggest issue that parents have with regard to money? Um, I think the biggest issue is that parents uh, don't talk to their kids about money. Uh, so money is kind of like sex and that parents just don't really want to talk to their kids about it. It's uncomfortable. Um, and so there's this sense that's like, oh, we need to protect our kids um, by not telling them about the stressful things about money or, um, you know, otherwise just not sharing with their kids, you know, how money works. Um, but unfortunately, 
kids are smart. They figure things out, um, and they take a lesson from us not talking to them about money that is different from the lesson that we're trying to teach them. So we're trying to shield them from any stress that we might be feeling about money, and instead what they learn is, uh, oh, money is bad because it makes mom and dad feel feel bad. Well, let me just go back a, a couple of generations here, I guess, because if you're if you're saying that kids get a particular message from parents, then it seems like those those kids, when they grow up, become the parents who do the same thing. So, how did how does it ever end? Uh, so the uh, um, and it's interesting you talk about going back a few generations. Um, there is a uh, researcher by the name of Dr. Bradley Klontz who he coined the term um, money scripts. Um, and what that is, these are the unconscious beliefs that we carry about money. They're the, the stories that we tell ourselves about money, and that's based in uh, the way money was viewed in our home growing up. So the um, reason why I say it's interesting to talk about going back a few generations, um, when you talk about we all know that children of the Depression grew up to be quite frugal, um, you know, where they would have a really hard time, um, you know, they'd have hoarding behaviors, they'd have a hard time um, throwing anything out, things like that, because of, you know, what if they need it um, after they've, they've gotten rid of it. Um, and so that's because of the lessons that they learned in their childhood, whether they were explicit lessons or implicit lessons. So what happens is, so whether your parents are trying to teach you, parents are trying to teach these lessons to kids or these are just things that kids are picking up, the kids grow up with these ideas about money, these money scripts in their head, and they react to money because of them. And so either what happens is the money scripts um, do not serve them well, uh, and they get into bad trouble with financially and either have to kind of figure out how to get out of it on their own or just continue to make bad decisions. Um, or these are, are money scripts that uh, serve them well in some way but still cause them stress or, or overwhelm in other ways. Uh, in, for instance, the, the children of the Depression who did learn to be frugal but became um, uh, you know, hoarders or over, otherwise overwhelmed by their feelings about money and, um, and, and things that they needed. Hmm. So in the very beginning you said that kids are growing up with this idea that money is bad or something like that. and how how is it that that we got those ideas in the first place uh well some of it is uh comes from the fact that uh you know as you know with a kid, they they will kind of um jump to the conclusion that makes sense in their own heads so um for instance um if uh, a little kid sees that their friend has a new toy, like, oh, my goodness, that's such a great toy. How much does it cost? And their their mom says, oh, honey, that's rude. We don't talk about money. Um, they immediately go to, like, oh, it must be bad to talk about money. You know, why is that rude? And they don't necessarily come to the, um, uh, the conclusion that, you know, the mom is saying that because they know that that toy came about because uh, the, the other friend's parents are going through a divorce and the father bought the toy and, you know, the, it represents something more than the money. Um, the child just comes to the conclusion like, oh, money's bad. I can't talk about money. So, um, and that's the sort of thing where, because uh, children, again, just kind of, uh, they uh, are navigating the world and trying to make sense of things that make perfect sense to an adult, but don't necessarily to a kid. And the problem is, once these views are entrenched in your head, 
um, when it comes to money, they generally don't come out again. Um, and that's partially because we don't talk about money as a society. So, no. you know, you can ask people, like, what's something silly that you believed when you were a kid? And people will come up with some really hilarious examples. Um, uh, so, my, for example, I thought the elegant marbles, um, I thought they were actually marbles. I didn't realize they were made of marble. <laughs> Um, and that's the sort of thing, like once I said it out loud at some point and somebody corrected me, oh, okay, that was a silly thing that I thought when I was a kid. Um, and that's the sort of thing where, but with money, because we as a society don't talk about it, these incorrect viewpoints about money become entrenched because um, it's a taboo subject in, in, in our society. And so we get stuck with these views of, oh, money is bad huh. or money causes shame. All right. So I, I probably was raised with the idea about not talking about money, hence this next question, which is, I mean, it seems like asking about how much things cost can be a little rude because it's not because that there's something ex rude about that exactly, but you're you're almost getting ready to make some sort of a judgment about whether somebody is rich or poor, or uh, which seems to be a little personal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I I use that example because I actually I, I had the same sort of thing where. I remember asking something like that when I was in, in my teens and my mom being like mortified. <laughs> the thing to remember though is uh, any time you're raising a child, there are going to be things that they ask that are um, inappropriate or embarrassing to the parent or something like that. And how you respond to that can affect how the child internalizes. Um, so, for instance, you know, I've got uh, two sm small children and, um, uh, you know, if one of them asks uh, someone who is disabled, like, why are you in that wheelchair really loud out in public? Oh, boy, am I going to be embarrassed <laughs> um, to, to have him ask that question. But how I respond to it will affect how they see the situation. So, um you know, responding to it like, oh, we don't ask people those sorts of questions can make it sound like it's shameful to be in a wheelchair. Um, and that's, you know, what the child will internalize. But if you say, you know, honey, that's not exactly the right way to ask that question. Maybe you could ask a different way, um, you know, or, uh, you know, there's any number of ways to navigate these difficult situations. But remember that um, shutting down a child's questions about anything um, generally does not end the questions in their head. They continue asking them. They just go, oh, mom or dad does not like it when I ask that question. There's so much I want to have you talk about as far as how to get beyond the stress to, so we can deal with the title of the book about ending financial stress. But so what what do we start doing as parents? We, we first of all have to understand exactly a little bit more about what money is, right, and what it can do and mm -hmm. what it can't do. So why don't you give us a quick uh, minute-long overview of that? Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing um, um, parents uh, need to do is recognize how their own relationship with money. Um, because the thing about money is that we think of it as this immutable thing in nature, but it's not. It's this construct. We have all collectively decided these little green pieces of paper are valuable. And if you think about it, that's kind of weird. <laughs> so because we have done that, we have um, money is vulnerable to having whatever we think about it placed on it. So, you know, our moral views of money, our social views of money are placed on it. So recognizing that things we think about money are not necessarily 
natural um, is the first thing that parents need to do because that can help them recognize like, oh, my view of money as being freedom, my view of money as being a source of shame, my view of money as how you show love um, is not necessarily true. Uh, and so that's the, kind of the first thing because like once you recognize your own relationship with money, you can find the beneficial aspects of your relationship with money to kind of uh, encourage and show to your kids and the negative aspects of your relationship with money, you can kind of uh, keep an eye on to try to make sure you don't pass that along to your children. Talking with Emily Guy Birkin, who is the author of End Financial Stress Now, Immediate Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about uh, some of the issues about what money is and what it isn't, but want to get into some of the specifics about uh, the psychological reasons why you might be struggling with money or achieving a stress-free financial life. I'm Armin Brott. You're listening to Positive Parenting. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell... Everything's changed at this time. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Emily Guy Birkin, who's the author of End Financial Stress Now, Immediate Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. So let's talk about once we have a basic understanding of, of what money is and the things that may be contributing to our our views of it, what are we going to do to stop worrying about it so much? Because I think whether people have a lot of it or little of it, there is still a lot that that there is to worry about. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and one of the things that I, you know, I want to make sure is clear in my book um, is that ending your stress does not mean ending your financial problems. There will always be financial problems, just as money will always flow in and out of your life. 
but you can uncouple the um, your stressful reactions to money from the actual uh, movement of money in your life so that you can, uh, when something happens that would normally cause you a great deal of financial stress, um, can be something where you can like, okay, how can we fix this? What can we do with the situation as it is rather than immediately go into, oh, my goodness, this is going to happen and this terrible uh, outcome will occur because of it. Uh, And so it's really about taking uh, a step back from uh, your emotional reaction to money so that you can um, have a logical and more rational response towards your money so that you can do the things that are going to uh, be the best for you financially. Yeah, you know, there's uh, you talk about some cognitive biases that cause a lot of financial stress, and there was one that I remember from a book called Predictably Irrational. That mm-hmm. and you do talk about something similar in the book where some where he he talks about how if somebody were giving you if, if there were shirts that were for sale for fifteen dollars a piece instead of thirty dollars, you might go all the way across town to buy a shirt to save fifteen bucks, but if you were looking at leather jackets and it was something a leather jacket were marked down from five hundred dollars to four hundred and eighty five, you wouldn't go all the way across town to save fifteen bucks. But it's the same fifteen bucks. It's just in one case it's fifty percent and in one case mm-hmm. it's three percent. So I mean what would you how do you explain that to people? So one of the things that, um, and Predictably Irrational is one of my my, uh, gateway (laughs) uh, books towards writing my book um, because it really blew my mind hearing about all of these different ways that um, our brains are predictably unable to um, make the most intelligent and rational choices. Um, And so that's one of the things that I I like to really point out um, in End Financial Stress Now is that uh, these are... These cognitive biases are ways that our brain kind of sets us up to fail Um, just because our brain is making these kind of mental shortcuts to help us figure something out. And uh, those rules of thumb do not always apply. So um, what's important is to remember that these kinds of cognitive biases exist. And then try to do whatever you need to do to outsmart these cognitive biases. Um, so, uh, and that that sort of thing is uh, it's really important once you recognize them in yourself. You can be like, "Oh yeah, that was really weird that I did that. Why did I do that? Okay, I'll know for the future that I won't." Uh, so the 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 one that I can remember doing a uh, similar sort of thing. I was buying a shirt that I really wanted, um, and it was uh, there was a second shirt that I wasn't interested in, but if you bought one, the second was 50% off. So I bought the shirt I didn't want so that I could spend more than I wanted on the original shirt. And so, you know, thinking back on it, like, why did I do that? Um, it's because the, the, the way the sale was uh, marketed to me um, just kind of short-circuited my, my logic um, to make me think, oh, yeah, I need to buy the second shirt that I don't really want that badly um, so that I can get this first shirt, even though I'm spending more money than I would have if I had just bought the first. And I recognize, okay, in the future, if I want something, I need to actually uh, plan on buying it. And uh, that's one of my own rules is I see something, if it's on sale and I'm interested in it, I think to myself, would I buy this full price? And the answer is no, then I know that that is a cognitive bias hmm. going on. Uh, t- telling me I should buy something. 
At, at the risk of stereotyping, somebody explained to me a little bit about how men and women sometimes have different ways of looking at money and that women are more likely to be intrigued by something that, by, by the percentage off as opposed to the hard cost of something. Do you think that's true? Um, I do think that there, there tends to be a, a difference, and this is more anecdotal than, than scientific. I've not, I've not yeah. seen scientific evidence of, of this. Um, so what I have noticed um, is that women, when they splurge, they tend to make small splurges throughout the year or throughout the month um, uh, and that add up to, you know, uh, quite a bit of money. Whereas, again, anecdotally, I've seen men tend to, like, all at once splurge on something big. Hmm. And so I think that's part of the reason why there, there's a difference in percentage versus total money, in part because um, in in this way, you know, if women are, you know, spending $20 here, $50 there, um, you know, they, they're more likely to, to focus on percentage, um, whereas men, if they're going to spend $500 on a video game system, um, will be more interested in, in uh, like, oh, and then I get X number of dollars off. Um, and it's partially because they're spending all at once, whereas the women are, are uh, kind of spending it throughout a longer period of time. So what are some other issues that people should be looking at as far as combating the, the biases that are, are driving them or some, some other, other ideas you can give us to get rid of some financial stress? Uh, well, there, there are two words in our kind of inner vocabulary that I think people should try to um, just um, dig out of what they say to themselves. And those two words are should and deserve. Um, so should is a word that we use to shame ourselves for not being what we think we should be. So, um, you know, there's, there's uh, when you say like, oh, I should not have lent money to my brother-in-law. Um, what you are saying is you're calling yourself um, kind of a name, basically, for, for having done something, even though you can't undo it. They're um, saying to yourself, I shouldn't have done that, doesn't actually fix the problem or move yourself forward. Or if you say to yourself something like, I should be able to change my own oil in my car and save money, um, that is, again, you're kind of shaming yourself for being someone who doesn't do this. Um, and so that you end that sentence there, I should be able to do this, or I shouldn't have done that. And instead, what you should say is, but I didn't, or but I don't. So now what? And then that is the complete sentence. Um, now, the other end of the spectrum is the word deserve. Um, and that is where you are telling yourself that whatever you're spending money on or whatever it is that you want to achieve um, is something that you have a right to. And the problem with the word deserve is that it, it always is defined as something that you lack. You know, you never say, you know, I deserve, um, you know, something that you already have uh, in general, unless it's something you already have that you think that someone might be taking away or might be going away in some way. And, um, what people will say it like, you know, I deserve this vacation. I worked so hard and it's a way of justifying spending money that you don't have. Well, what you really deserve is freedom from financial stress. That's what you deserve. Um, so using the word deserve to justify purchases or spending that you, you can't really afford is um, just kind of putting off the stress of it um, in a way and kind of 
giving yourself permission to do something that you already know you probably can't afford or should maybe save up for or something like that. And so it's good to just kind of like um, examine anytime you use the word deserve to yourself. Like, what does that mean? Why am I thinking that? And, you know, what could I get? How could I get the feeling that I feel like I deserve without spending money? And that's a way that you can, um, you can, uh, really examine it and get the sensation you want without getting into the debt or uh, spending on your savings or mm. whatever it is that might happen because of what you think you deserve. You know, we only have just a couple seconds left, but in, in a couple of words, what's the most important piece of financial advice you would give people? Uh, forgive yourself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of financial stress comes from um, uh, feeling guilty, shameful, unhappy, whatever about uh, about your money. So start with forgiving yourself and you can move forward from there. Emily Guy Birkins, the author of End Financial Stress Now, Immediate Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. Emily, thanks so much. Thank you. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that we can give our daughters everything they need to grow and learn, but not every child can focus on classes and play dates. Nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. face hunger. That's one in six. School lunch might be their only meal each day, and it's heartbreaking to imagine any child going to bed hungry. We're dreaming of a perfect day when kids can smile, play, and just be kids without worrying about where their next meal will come from. Feeding America is working to make that perfect day a reality. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. That food is given to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about doing things that make an ordinary day extraordinary learning to play an instrument, building a sandcastle, hosting tea parties. Hunger should never be an obstacle to growing up. You can help end childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. Did you know that January was National Puzzle Month or that January 29th is National Puzzle Day? Well, if not, don't feel bad. Neither did we. But one thing we're quite sure of is that doing puzzles is a wonderful way to spend time with your family. Plus, it's good for you. Whether it's a 1,000-piece jigsaw, a crossword, a Sudoku, or something else, doing puzzles has been shown to increase alertness and concentration, improve memory or mood, boost problem-solving abilities and spatial reasoning, and lower stress levels. So in honor of National Puzzle Month or any other month, here are a few puzzleicious ways to disconnect from our hyper-digital lifestyle, reconnect with your family, and generally improve your life. All of these are from our very good friends at Ravensburger. Puzzle to relax. It's almost impossible to walk by an unfinished puzzle. Typically, people intend to stop for only a few seconds, but 30 to 90 minutes later find that they've lost themselves in the never-ending quest to find just one more piece. When choosing a puzzle to relax, imagery is key. Look for images that make you happy, like puppies, or feel at peace, like African animals. Prices vary greatly depending on piece count, which range from 200 to 9,000 pieces. You can find out more information at ravensburger.us slash products slash jigsaw dash puzzles. Puzzle for tradition. Most families break out a puzzle during the winter months, often as part of their holiday traditions. Choose a puzzle everyone can enjoy and finish. 
For most families, 1,000-piece puzzles are both a challenge yet entirely doable over the course of a week or two. Choose a majestic scene like the Yosemite Valley, or better yet, send in a high-res photo and create your own 1,000-piece memory with a custom photo puzzle. Prices range from about $16 for a standard 2D puzzle to about $40 for the custom puzzle. Puzzle to connect. Connecting with family often means disconnecting from our digital lifestyle and sharing a common goal, such as the race to find and place the last piece. Working together on a puzzle can open the floodgates to incredible conversations with your children, especially those often hard-to-reach tweens and teens. Have a puzzle on the dining room table of a dreamy destination like New York's Times Square or favorite characters from Disney Pixar to escape together, even if it's only for just a few minutes. Puzzle for fun. Puzzling is something that everyone at any age can enjoy together. It's made more fun, though, when you take the experience from 2D to 3D. Ravensburger's line of 3D puzzles includes the Eiffel Tower, the Statue of Liberty, Big Ben, a VW camper bus, the legendary Porsche 911R, and many others. They're all built to scale and will become treasured multi-generation keepsakes. Prices range from about $29 to $60. You'll find reviews of a bunch more. Toys, games, activities, and all sorts of other things to do with your kids at our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another great show for you. Until then, I'm Armin Brat. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.